everyone. Um, so I'm Moses and I'm Nigerian and um, I work as a software engineer at Google. Uh, one fact people here may not know is I turned 30 last Saturday. So. Oh, no way. Goodness, Moses, you never told us it was your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. How does it feel being 30? Uh, maybe gray hairs here and there, but it's all about the wisdom, I guess. Oh, yeah. listen to that. Listen I'm to just that. giving advice to all the young people now. Like, Unbelievable. Wait, you know what? I, I would love to take some of that advice. I, I long for the day that I turned 30 as well, Moses, so that is great. You are the man. I'd love to hear a little bit about your faith. So when did you begin to follow Jesus, and how is the gospel shaping your worldview today in Dublin? Yeah, um, I was born and raised in a very Christian family. Jesus was mentioned every now and then, you know, Christmas, family devotion, almost everything. My mom was just so much into Jesus. But um, I think it was um, August of 2007 at a youth camp that I decided that I wanted to give my life to Jesus and um, accept the Christian faith. And um, I think that comes with a lot of implications, but I think um, it was at that moment I realized that it was only through Jesus that I could have redemption. It was only through Jesus that I could find peace and comfort and be restored uh, and build a relationship with God. And I think in terms of my worldview, uh, just shaping my worldview, I think the, the, the gospel casts this light on the way that I live. And um, some choices are easier to make, some choices are harder to make. Uh, say, for example, in Dublin, uh, you think about the dating scene. Uh, you know, mm. you, you might think you want to date or you want to marry someone who's non-Christian. Obviously, there are more, more non-Christians than Christians in Dublin. Mm. And I think the prospects of dating a non-Christian is, you know, it's, it's very appealing. But I think one of those odd choices is if you read the Bible, you realize that um, it's a very great risk if you decide as a believer, one who believes in Jesus, mm. to date or marry someone who's non-Christian. And I think uh, this is one of the hard implications of, you know, just accepting that you want to follow Jesus and you want to live your life mm. according to the Bible. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Moses. And in terms of church community then, because you said you, you've, you've come from Nigeria, you're here now in Dublin, you're working for Google. What role has your church community played in helping you stay and put down roots in Dublin? You know, Mafi, at some point during the pandemic, I'd, I'd wanted to move out of Dublin, move to a different county in Ireland. Mm. Uh, I mean, you think about the prospects. If you are working from home and um, you, could, you could move out of Dublin and, you know, just save some costs from the, uh, save a few bucks from having to pay the high Dublin rent. But um, thankfully, I was in life group at the time, and I, I just brought this up with the members of my life group at the time, and um, I realized from the conversations that we had, I was going to be sacrificing long-term value for a short-term gain, mm. save a few bucks, but then you just lose that community and lose that relationship. And I think for me, that relationship has been very important for me to continue to nurture my faith in Christ. Mm. That's powerful. And Moses, in terms of today's theme on the, the purpose and life, to those questioning their purpose in life, what would you have to say to them? I know that there's purpose uh, for life. If, if the very question, uh, if there's no purpose in life or for life, the very question, what is the purpose of life, then will have no meaning. And then everything just self-implodes. Um, and if we all agree that this, uh, life has a purpose, I would go on to say that God has designed life to have purpose and um, he's made us in his image. Mm. And if a scripture tells us that God is love, I think in trying to leave out the purpose that God has designed for us is to try to become uh, more like God to mm. Christ, which is the image of love. So which means the love of God expressed to God 
and amongst ourselves. And I think this is the ultimate purpose. This should underpin everything that we do and every other purpose that we might have mm. in our lives. That's powerful. Moses, thanks a million. Yeah. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that. I ho hope you guys get to know a little bit more about Moses now. But I would encourage you, if you've got a question for him, about him, or something you want to chat to him about, he will be available at the end of the service. And he would love to connect with you. Amen. Amen. Stephen Tuddy, I'd love to invite you up to pray for Moses as he goes back to his seat. That'd be awesome. All right, let's pray, guys. Um, yeah, Father, just thank you for, for the way you have been working in Moses' life. Um, Father, thank you that, uh, yeah, even though he, you know, he grew up in a Christian household, Lord, um, yeah, he had to make that decision for himself to follow you, Jesus. And just thank you that he did make that decision. Um, and, yeah, Father, you have been working in him, and that's been clear. And I just thank you for, um, yeah, for the joy that he's brought into not just my life, but the, but the life of so many others. Um, and, um, yeah, Lord, just please continue to work through Moses. Um, yeah, his, his smile is just amazing, and, and his conversation is always just full of grace and, and, and full of joy, Lord. So just thank you for, um, yeah, the way you have been in Moses. And I just pray that you continue to bless his life, Lord, and whatever he goes into in the future, Lord, will you be with him uh, during that. And thank you that you are always with him. Um, and yeah, just Jesus, we just, we praise you. And thank you that his motivation for life is you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you very much, Moses, for sharing part of your story with us. And thanks, Stephen, for praying. So we've got to know Moses a little bit more um, today. But another way that we can get to know other people in the church is our wonderful icebreaker that we all look forward to. Um, so what I'd love you to do is turn to the person beside you, introduce yourself, say hello. And I'd like you to ask each other the simple question, what makes you happy? What makes you happy? Okay, guys, we'll bring it back. Um, I hope there are some interesting things of happiness there. And we can continue on those conversations um, at the pub after as well. Um, Maffie's up to help me with the news here. Maffie, what makes you happy? 
a lot of things make me happy, but I love jumping off rocks into the sea, so cliff jumping makes me super happy. That is wonderful. Katie, what makes you happy? Well, I was about to say, Matthew, what about your newborn baby? <laughs> uh, Abigail is eight months old, so she's no longer a newborn, so... Uh, if this mic wasn't so expensive, I'll drop it right now. Oh, that's fun. Oh, well, Ibiza makes me happy because I went to Ibiza on a mission trip, not a party trip, but it's okay if you do go for a party trip. So anyway, um, so we're going to go on to some church news now. Um, so as you know, we've been looking through our series, What's the Story? And today we're looking at what is the purpose of life. And um, we're on week three of our six-part series. Next week will be week four. And we'll be looking at finding hope in the face of death. So definitely one to be thinking about during the week. Think about your own opinions of it, your theories. And we're going to have an interactive um, Q&A next week as well. So you'll be able to text in your questions um, and then um, there'll be people answering them at the front. It'll also be a great week to invite some of your friends along. Um, so do extend them the invitation. There's the Instagrams to send them and some flyers at the back. Um, so hope to see you there. Next, we have our weekend away, which is coming up. So hands up if you signed up already for a weekend away. Okay, that's not, not enough. That is fantastic. Guys, we will have a laptop down at the bottom of the, the hall at the stage at the end of the service. So 4th to the 6th of November, Friday to Sunday, sign-ups are open. Oh, but sign-ups are, uh, well, early bird prices are closing really soon. So it's the last day for early bird prices, but... I've just extended that by one week. So early bird prices finish next Sunday. So I'd encourage you, if you want to sign up, it is certainly not too late. You can still sign up for the early bird and come down to the bottom of the hall and grab me and I will get you signed up. And in term, terms of paying for it, you can, you can pay for it as and when between now and then. There's no, no great panic. But if we get, get sign-ups, that'll be great because it'll give us an idea of how many people are going It'll give us a chance to help get you in the rooms. We've got double rooms, dorm rooms, shared rooms, camping, which I don't think anyone's actually camped before, but you could maybe be the first. And then there's opportunity for offsite Airbnb if you wanted. So any questions, come speak to Vanessa, speak to Steve or, or myself or even Katie. And uh, if, if finance is an issue, then bursaries are available. And so we, we would say our CCC weekend away is, is, is this moment that will help gel the community. If you want to get to know who, who's in the family, if you, if you want to get to know who, who's sitting beside you, then spending a weekend in Castle Daily Manor in Athlone is a great way to do it. I also heard there might be a free pack of chocolate buttons for people who sign up. Now, they might be available at refreshments anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> still, it makes it seem worth it. Um, so, yes, we also have our city groups. Um, they have started up last week, and for us at Christ City Church, they are our primary, primary place of community. Um, they are on different days throughout the week at different locations across Dublin. You can see on the screen behind me um, the different ones that might be available to you. Um, it's not too late to get plugged into them. Um, there's flyers on the information table at the back there, or you can fill out a connect form and Matthew can get you linked up with the leaders. Um, we spend time looking through the Bible, usually talking about the sermon that Sunday, having a meal together, and just getting to yeah, have a place of community during the week, um, which isn't just on a Sunday. Awesome. And then last announcement is finances. So at CCC, we, we, we want to act with 100% integrity. 
whenever it comes to finances because ultimately money matters. Matters to you, matters to God, matters to CCC. And so being faithful with our money is, is a way that, that you can worship. It's a way that we can worship together. And so if you consider yourself uh, here part of the CCC family, then we would encourage you to begin to think about where you stand with regards to giving. What, what we found is that, that most people would say that they don't give because they've never actually got around to giving. So over on the information desk, we've, we've got a form. We've got um, an opportunity to sign up for standing order. And there's also the, the little post box. What you'll notice here is that, that we do not pass around the collection plate. We don't do our giving that way. Rather, there's a post box there you can give anonymously, or you could sign up for uh, forgiven via Revolut or letterbox, bank transfer, standing order. So suggestions to get started. So if, if you don't yet give, then why, why not start maybe 50, 100 euro a month perhaps? Or what, what if you're unemployed or, or you're a student? Uh, what, what about giving? Well, maybe let's start at 10, 10 euro a month, maybe 20 euro a month. And perhaps if you're an existing giver, what, what would it be like perhaps to, uh, to up that by 25 euro perhaps? Uh, so the key thing is to consider what you can give and then actually get started. And so it might be good to even just to think on it, reflect on it. And then we've got, uh, we've got uh, forms over here to, to sign up to get the ball rolling. If you want to chat more about it, then Will here, Will, hand up. Will is on the finance team. You can come chat to Will, come chat to Steve or myself. And we would love to help get this started. So, Katie, back to you. Thanks so much, Matthew. Um, we're now going to invite Leanne up to do our reading for us today before Steve comes to do the talk. Um, and I think there's welcome, oh yeah, there's What's the Story booklets at the back there. If you want to put your hand up, if you'd like one, they have the passage in them. And Vanessa will hand them out to you. So today we, oh, I need to take a short break. Okay, today our reading's from John chapter 4, which is page 13, if you're reading in the little books. And we're going to start at verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, 
but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. And if you jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. And I'm just going to pray for Steve before he speaks. Um, Father, I just thank you that we can be here today. And I thank you for your word. And I just pray as we come to listen to what you've placed in Steve's heart, I pray you'll quiet our minds and our hearts and just open um, our ears to what you have to say. I pray you'll use Steve and speak through him. And I just pray that we'll have the ears to listen to what you have to say this afternoon. Amen. Wonderful. Great to be with you. Moses, you don't look eight days over 30. Um, I thought that was quite a good joke. Okay, never mind. Uh, in our house, we uh, love this film, The Greatest Showman, for the story, the cast, and the songs. It has the, uh, Hugh Jackman as the star actor. It's the story of a poor orphaned P.T. Barnum and his quest for fame and fortune. He's going to make a perfect world and the greatest show on earth. And he almost does. He starts a circus full of unusual people, out of the ordinary people. And it's a big hit. He makes a name for himself. He makes millions. He puts his kids in ballet school. He tours the world. He proves all his, critic wrong, all his critics wrong because he felt inadequate his whole life as an orphan. And he thought he could do more than what life had given him. And he uh, gets on through his own brilliance, ambition, and tenacity to achieve his dreams. And yet it's not enough. And he gambles his circus, his wife, and his daughters, and all his money on the Swedish opera star Jenny Lind. Like Barnum, she's from a tough background, and like Barnum, she'd made it to the top of her profession and was the greatest opera singer in the world. And yet her famous song goes, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Towers of gold are too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. And those that want to sing, never be enough. You have these two brilliant, talented, wonderfully successful, fantastically rich people who've chased their dreams and achieved them, and yet it's never enough. This, my friends, is the paradox of purpose 
and happiness. It's a brilliant story because it taps in to what we all know. There's a quest inside of us for more, for more happiness, but it's never quite enough. You never quite get the thing you're looking for. It's the paradox of purpose and happiness. So today we're going to think of three things. The paradox itself, ancient and modern ways to resolve the paradox, and unconditional love as the only way to resolve it. The story of P.T. Barnum is not a new story. The most ancient, ancient version I know is found in the Old Testament in a book called Ecclesiastes, uh, a famous Old Testament book. It's the first account of someone coming to terms with themselves with the elusive purpose and nature of happiness and purpose. In his autobiographical autobiographical account, this ancient Israelite man uses a Hebrew word to describe his search. And I realize I have to go to my bag. His name, the word is Hevel. And this means ephemeral or transient or um, uh, vanity or meaningless. It has lots of translations. It's hard to get a hold of what this word means. It can mean vapor or breath or mist. What is transient? Maybe the best way to think of this word hevel is to think of it as a bubble. That the things you love in life are like bubbles. That when you try and grab hold of them to make them your life's meaning, in that moment of grasping them, they disappear. So the man says, everything in life that could provide my meaning, when I tried to grab it, it disappeared in the moment of trying to grab it. It's elusive, it's slippery, it's like the mist, it's brief and tragic. He describes it many times like a chasing after the wind, something that's impossible to chase after the wind. But don't make the mistake of thinking this Old Testament sage has had a terrible life. He's had the very best of life. In the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, he talks about how he tried to discover meaning and wisdom. He read all the books of his time on wisdom. And they were heavy. He tried to find it in pleasure. He said he enjoyed great pleasures. He did it in achievements. He did great things in the world. Environmental projects. Before modern world got interested in the green agenda, he was involved 3,000 years ago. I'll make a difference in our world. You can read it in chapter 2 there. Productivity. He didn't waste a moment of his life. Riches. He became exceedingly rich. And sexual pleasures. He enjoyed many women. He says in chapter 2, I amassed silver and gold for myself from the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delight of the heart of man. And he also became great. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He had fame and fortune and pleasure and esteem. He says in, chap- in verse 10 of chapter 2, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He was a hedonist. But his conclusion, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and all that I toiled to achieve, everything was heaven. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This is the story of P.T. Barnum, but 1000 BC in Israel. A man who had everything, but it's not enough. Grappling with the ephemeral nature of meaning. And satisfaction. Does my life have a purpose? He says, no, there's nothing to be gained under the sun when you really step back and look at it. And I'm afraid it gets worse. 
A few verses later, he thinks, well, what's the point of being wise? Because he talks about death. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is hevel. For the wise man like the fool will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. He says, well, even if there was some kind of purpose I could potentially conjure up in this life, the moment of death will sweep it away. Woody Allen powerfully put it like this, the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is that constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishment hevel. In the end, death renders everything we do in this life meaningless. We just get swept away. The fate of the fool will overtake the same fate will overtake the wise person. What's the point of being wise? Even if I make something great in my life, then in the end, what's the point? The writer after writer in all eras of history, when they've been honest to look at their own hearts, have all discovered the paradox of purpose and meaning. When you chase for something, the moment you grab it, it doesn't satisfy. Wallace Stevens, in his poem, Sunday morning puts it like this. In contentment, I still feel the need for an imperishable bliss. In the moment of finding the thing that my thing, I can build my life on this, I still discover I want something else. It's wrenched from our grasp. And by the way, the best marketeers and advertisers in our world play on this paradox. They monetize the paradox, tempting you. If you just buy this, if you just go there, if you just have this relationship, if you just have that house, this car, that career, if you can just do this with your life, then you'll be happy. Then you'll have the purpose and meaning you're looking for. So the best marketeers and advertisers in our world monetize the paradox of purpose that we all have in our hearts by telling us there is something out there that will solve it. And Dublin has its own version, its own marketeers. I was walking through Dublin city centre right by the, the, the Docklands area with all those beautiful tech offices and the, the high-tech, um, uh, sorry, the, 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 the penthouses, those high fancy penthouses there. And, uh, you know, walking through city centre Dublin where it all happened. And as I walked, I, just, I, I saw uh, this sign from a marketeer, what's the story Dublin? I thought, that's cheekier than to rob our sermon series. <laughs> but they were trying to sell me these houses. They're trying to monetize the paradox. And what did they say? My story is working smarter, moving up. My story is living green for a better future, tomorrow. My story is preserving old traditions and making new ones. Our story is growing every single day. Our story is innovation through new technology. My story is redefining what's possible. Our story is getting the right balance. My story is living where it all happens. It's interesting, isn't it? These are just pictures that are, it's like the man of Ecclesiastes, 3,000 years later, is not walking through Jerusalem, he's walking through Dublin, and everyone says, here's how you can find your meaning and purpose. Humanity and marketeers have not found any new way to fill the cavernous hole in all of our hearts. Pleasure, achievement, environmental projects, productivity, riches, greatness, settle down, have a family. None of these things are bad things. In fact, we're going to see the real wonderful things. These are some of the best things. But they're not enough. They're not enough. And then if they were, one day death will come and sweep them all away. So what's the point? This is the paradox 
of purpose and happiness. So how have we tried, ancient and modern, since the world began to resolve the paradox in the human heart? There are seven ways. And here I draw extensively from Tim Keller's chapter on satisfaction in his book, Making Sense of God, an invitation to the skeptics. He says there's seven roots, depending on your life stage and personality. The first one is naivety, particularly if you're young and you just, you just assume, I need more time and then I'll find my purpose and then I'll find my meaning. You just, you're, you're young and naive, you think, well, eventually I'll find my meaning and purpose. But then as you get a bit older, you, you start to find it hard to find that and so then you get resentful. You start to blame all the obstacles and all the people that stop you being happy and stop you finding your purpose, and you then end up as a victim, a victim to the social structures, your parents, the friends, people that let you down, and you, you just are a victim, and you're resentful. But then you move beyond that and say, well, I can't just be a victim. I've got to make something of myself. So you're, you're like P.T. But even though I'm an orphan, I'm going to go and do this. And you become extremely driven, workaholics. I'm going to have this relationship, this experience, this success. I'm going to climb up the career ladder, assuming that if I, no obstacle is going to get in my way. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to be driven and achieve it. But then eventually, you're a little bit older, and you find that even if you have achieved lots of things, you can often despair because it's been like the bubble. And you go from blaming circumstances to blaming others to blaming yourself. The reason I have not got purpose and meaning in my life is because of me. All of these tactics, these first four tactics, assume there is a purpose out there and a happiness out there to be achieved. But on the flip side, you may start to go, well, maybe there isn't such a thing as purpose and happiness in life. And therefore, another route people take is through altruism. Those in the first part of their life that became exceedingly rich use the second part of their life to help others, often politically. There seems to be a better path, and of course, altruism is better than hedonism, but it can just be as self-serving if at the heart of your benevolence is a desire to find your own personal meaning. Your altruism is actually self-serving to build an identity for yourself. It's to fulfill you. Supposed generosity is really being used to build oneself up, and that often reveals its ugly self when your altruistic efforts are met with disdain and contempt. And, and, and not respect and gratitude. If altruism has my happiness at the center, it'll backfire and I'll get so annoyed with everyone that's not so engaged with what we should all be engaged with as I'm engaged with it because I'm... And you start to look down on people. And you can become cynical. You just stop chasing the rainbow. You lower expectations of life. The problem with this one is you become patronizing of anyone who has a dream. And you become very stagnant. You can give up. That doesn't seem right either. And then the final way that people have, the Eastern religions and the Greek Stoics, is detachment. Don't love anything, not even your children. Don't attach your heart to anything in this world. And you just harden yourself. So we can be A, naive, resentful, anxious, driven, self-hating and despairing holding out that there is a purpose and happiness in life to be grasped, or we can become condescending, cynical, and detached by giving up the true, the idea that happiness and purpose are out there to be discovered. Is there a better way? I will contend there is. Unconditional love as the only way to resolve the paradox. The story that was read to us from John chapter 4 
is the story of a woman who's tried to discover meaning and happiness through men. She's had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her, hus- is not her husband. She tried to find her purpose and meaning in affirmation from men, status given her from being with a man, the company and companionship from a man, and pleasure in sex from a man. One wonders if she'd started off in the young and naive category going, eventually I'll find the right man who will satisfy me. One imagines she just assumed that eventually it will come when the right man came, but where did it left her? In despair. One doesn't have to read between the lines really of the story to realize she's probably gone from blaming her circumstances to blaming others to blaming herself. She hates herself. And that's why she is where she is. Where is she? She's in a desert at 12 noon. Those of you that had European holidays this year know what you do at 12 noon in a hot country. You do not go and do strenuous activities. Here you have a woman on her own in the middle of a desert trying to draw water. What does that tell you about her? She's an outcast. Morally, she's an outcast. Everyone knows about the husband. Socially, she's an outcast. She's on her own. No women are there to support her or protect her from dangerous predatory men. She's also an ethnic outcast. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other from stuff that had gone on in their history. And and at one point, uh, she says this to Jesus, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then, the gospel writer John, for those in later history who don't understand, say, well, the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You know that much, don't you? It's like a, a north sider and a south sider in Dublin. You know, you don't know. <laughs> she's, a, she's an ethnic outsider. Bitter enmity, rivalry. And not only that, she's a social, moral, ethnic outcast. But in a patriarchal world, she's also an outcast by gender. She's a woman. And the disciples fulfill the patriarchal expectations of their day. Did you see it in verse 27? Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. No one had. She's alone in the middle of the desert trying to draw water from a well. She's thirsty. She is thirsty for meaning. She is thirsty for purpose. She's thirsty for happiness. She's thirsty for love. She's thirsty for companionship. She's thirsty for purpose. And yet the more she drinks, every husband she has, Leaves her more thirsty. The water she's drinking is not fresh water, but salt water. The more you drink of salt water, the closer you are to dying. She's ashamed. She's rejected. She's in hiding. But how does the story end? She's free. She's confident. She's not thirsty. Her cup is overflowing. She's quenched. She's not fearful. She's full of confidence. She goes back and tells everyone. She's not hiding. She's now part of the community. Others of the community are now coming with her to find the spring of water to drink from that she found in the desert. And that's how the story ends. Verse 28, it says, she leaves her jar. It's a metaphor of leaving all the old ways of drinking that have not satisfied her. All those men, I'm not going to find that anymore. I found the man. And she goes back into the town and she's oozing with confidence. She's been filled up. Her cup is overflowing. She has a new purpose. And what is her purpose, verse 29? 
come see a man. Come see a man. Come and meet Jesus. I've discovered my purpose in a man. His name is Jesus. I'd always thought there's a man out there that was going to satisfy me. And now I've found the man who does fulfill me. Come and see a man. And verse 30 reads that all of those came out of the town. They listened to her testimony and they were so astounded that they came to the desert to drink the water she found in the desert. And so many drank from it, we read in verse 39 to 42, that they put their trust in Jesus as the saviour of the world. Notice, none of her circumstances changed. She still had five husbands. And the man she was living with was still not her husband. She still was a social, moral, ethnic, and gendered outcast in her society. Nothing on the outside had changed, but on the inside she discovered a purpose through the man Jesus. He'd been filled up with his unconditional love. Notice a few things about Jesus' interaction with her. Firstly, he accepts her in her sexual failure and relational desert. He doesn't castigate her. He doesn't try to change and reform her. In other words, he covers her shame. We looked at that last week. She can face her past. She can face herself. She can face her five husbands. She can face her boys. She can face the whole town now. Why? Because Jesus accepts her. And when Jesus accepts you, you can face anything. Even the horrors of the past and the challenges of the present. Here's a man who loves me, no strings attached. Unconditional love. He accepts her. Secondly, he comes looking for, she's not looking for him. She's not looking for, he's looking for her. And he initiates, not to have sex, but he initiates to empower and to dignify her. Verse 7 says, he asked her for a drink. He made himself lower than her. He put himself in a position of weakness so she could come to his aid. This is unconditional love. He, he dignifies her. You help me. He gives her a role. And then, after accepting, after coming looking for her and dignifying her, he challenges her to give up her broken system. At the right time, when she knew she was safe, She'd been dignified and empowered by him. He does bring up the sensitive subject of the husbands. Jesus wants, her to, wants to fill her with living water, but he can only fill her with living water if she stops drawing water from the empty cisterns. He can only give her fresh water if she stops drinking salt water. Years earlier, Jesus, uh, that God had said not just to one Samaritan woman, but to his, all his people, my people, have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jesus confronts the woman, and he confronts every one of you and me in this room tonight. He says, you've committed two sins. You've turned your back on me, the living water. You've tried to find meaning and purpose and identity and satisfaction in other things. That's the first sin. And the second sin is you've gone to a broken system. You've tried to go to another well. And you've kept drinking from things. If I can just have that, I'll be satisfied. I'll have purpose. And it's left you thirsty. C.S. Lewis wrote extensively on this theme of how unfulfilled desires help us find Jesus as the living water. He says this at one point, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're drinking salt water to find satisfaction. We're looking in men and sex and ambition, Lewis says, and in all these other wonderful things the world gives us. And he says, you're fools. You've been, shot. You've been sold short by the marketeers. You're letting yourself be conned. Your desires aren't too strong. They're too weak. You're going after the wrong things. You're going after broken systems when the living water is here. And so Jesus says these precious truths. I love these verses. They're some of my favorite verses from one of my most favorite chapters. Jesus asked her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would say, can you give me living water? You would discover your purpose in me. You'd discover meaning in me. You'd be filled up with me. What transformed this woman was Jesus. In verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water, the actual water at the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. What transformed this woman is she discovered her purpose in Jesus. His unconditional love, her cup overflowed with it. She started to know him and live for him and resemble him. The, the Westminster Catechism tried at one point to summarize what is man and woman's chief purpose? What is our great meaning in life? And I paraphrase, it says this, our primary purpose in life is to know and enjoy Jesus forever. That's what the woman discovered, to know and to enjoy him forever. So through the stories of P.T. Barnum, the man of Ecclesiastes and the woman at the well, We've looked at the paradox of purpose and happiness. We've looked at seven ancient and modern ways to resolve the paradox. And we've thought about unconditional love, the well of living water from Jesus, filling us to overflowing that can become our purpose as we know him, love him, serve him, resemble him. That's the theory. But what does it look like to be filled up by Jesus every day? To turn from the broken systems to him every day. Well, let me turn to one more figure of history to help us with this, St. Augustine. In his autobiography, his confessions, he grapples with the paradox of happiness. And Augustine concludes that the issue is not that we love the wrong things, but we love things in the wrong order. It's not that we love the wrong things, we love things in the wrong order. So the solution, therefore, is not to love things of this life less, it's to love God more. The problem is not that we love our children or our job too much, it's that we love God too little in relation to them. God is the only one we cannot lose. God is the only one who can satisfy us. So don't give your heart to anything fully in the way that you give your heart to him. And that's why God always calls us to praise him and worship him, because only he can fully satisfy us. Our desires are not too strong or too weak. And he asks us to channel a greater desire for him. So Augustine's most famous line that has come down loud and clear over 1,500 years is this. You stir people to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless 
until it rests in you. The solution is not to love the things of this life less, but to love God more. That's why Jesus said all the Old Testament law and prophets hang on these two things, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Augustine understood as the breakthrough to purpose. It's not to love, it's not that we love the wrong things, it's we love things in the wrong order. When we love God first, our love for other people and things will be purified, and we can actually enjoy them. We don't have to try and grab these things to make them our life. We can just enjoy them while they're here. Because God is the one we've grabbed hold of and made him our life. He's the one that's true and lasting and eternal. We can put on him a weight we can't put on anything else for our significance. Tim Keller summarizes like this. Here then is the message. Don't love anything less. Instead, learn to love God more. And you will love other things with more satisfaction. You won't overprotect them. You won't overexpect things from them. You won't be constantly furious with them for not being what you'd hoped. Don't stifle passionate love for anything. Rather, redirect your greatest love towards God by loving him with your whole heart and loving him not just for what he can give you, but for himself. Then and only then does contentment start to come. Final thought. Final thought. How does women, how does Jesus quench the thirst of this woman? How does Jesus fill this thirsty woman with living water? One day he'd be in a desert himself under the greatest heat of eternal justice for all the things we've done wrong and all the things that mean we should be an outcast and condemned and shoved to the side and rejected. He would go into a desert that none of us would ever experience. He'd face it a greater heat than any of us could ever experience. He'd be cut off not just from the Samaritan village, but from the eternal relationship of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And on the cross, John chapter 19 says he cries out from the cross, what? I thirst. He was parched beyond belief with all our sin and all our failure and all the times we drank from broken cisterns. He was parched so he could take the penalty for our sin and our rebellion And he could fill us with what John chapter 7 says, the Holy Spirit, living water. As we come into relationship with God the Father through the Son, the Spirit fills us. He'd experience the ultimate desert so we could have a cup that overflows for eternity. The wonder of the gospel. So as we come to communion, the bread and wine, we drink the wine today because he bled for us. We eat the bread today and are satisfied and are nourished and remind ourselves of our meaning because he was broken for us. This is his initiative, like with the woman at the well. None of us were searching for him. We were just lost in a desert and he came searching for us. And we have an opportunity to respond now. So as you come This is for followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so delighted you're here. We're so chuffed that you've come to explore these issues with us. And we encourage you just to wait in your seat and to consider the things that we've thought about. But for those that follow Christ, come to the Lord's Supper, the the bread and the wine today. And as you come, do two things. Consciously give up the broken system. 
I'm a follower of Jesus many years. Some of you are for many years too. It's easy to say Jesus is my life and then in the week we drink from somewhere else and go, my meaning and purpose is in this. Today, come to the Lord's table saying, sorry that so often you're not my satisfaction and meaning and purpose. And then drink freely of his forgiveness and his love and be filled up by him. Let me pray. I'll invite the band back. And then we're going to just sing. And I want you to reflect on those two things from that quote from Jeremiah there, where he says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. As you come forward, think about your the places you drink from that aren't of Jesus and commit again to drinking from him. So would you stand with me? I'll pray. And then when you're ready, you just come forward to collect and uh, all the bread is gluten-free um, if uh, that's important to you. Let's take a moment to be quiet and then I will, uh, I will pray. When you come forward to get the bread and the wine, take it back to your seats and then I'll come back up to tell you when to take it. We thank you, Lord, as we sang earlier in the service, there's good news that you came to us. When we were in a desert, when we were lost, when we were drinking from all the things of this world that we thought we'd find, we'd find meaning in, and they left us empty, you came finding us. And you empowered us, and you accepted us, and you gave us dignity and worth. I pray, Lord, now as we come to the Lord's table to drink and eat of your blood and your body that was given for us that we might have life that you would uh, help us to let go of all those broken systems. Help us to turn from them. Those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus yet drink weekly from some, some other well, would you help us this week to drink of you and take this moment to be filled up afresh. But we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you did come searching. And today as your people, we respond by saying we want to drink again of the living water that you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name.
trust at all times. I give glory and praise, adoration to my Savior who's seated on high. By grace I'm free, you've rescued me. Take a little bit from them. Uh, we're sorry to run out of the stuff. So as we take this bread and wine, we remember Jesus' body was broken for us so we could be made whole and we could be nourished. So eat by faith on what he has done for you. And the wine or the juice represents his, body, his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And to be filled up with the Holy Spirit. So drink by faith and be filled with him. Father, we thank you for feeding us with the blood and the, and the body of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the things we've reflected on today. We thank you for uh, this amazing story of a woman 
whose life was transformed, as she drank from you and ended up becoming a spring of living water for others. We pray that would be true in our lives too. Not, not only would we turn from our broken systems, we would come to you daily, and then as we come to you, would you fill us to overflowing, that others around us may come to drink the living water of Jesus because of our lives and our words and our witness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship. You are good, you are good, when there's nothing good in me. You are love, you are love, on display for all to see. You are light, you are light, when the darkness closes in. You are hope, you are hope, you have covered all my sin.
The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And the Lord is good to all. Compassion on all that he has made. As far as the east was from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions. and compassionate slow to anger and rich in love Jesus answered everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Jesus, thank you that this is the purpose that you have given us, to come to your well and drink from it. Thank you, Lord, that you just didn't create us in this world and then leave us to fend for ourselves, but you have provided for us, and this is our role. Our role is to be in relationship with you, God, to not feel empty, but to feel full, because you, Jesus, came running from heaven to meet us here, to fill our well, to give us water we can drink for eternity, so that we can live life to the full because of who we are in you. Jesus, will you help us this week to recognize that is our purpose? Will you show us where we're searching elsewhere and redirect us back to you? God, will you help us to love you with all our heart and our soul and all our mind? But thank you that you're gracious and compassionate when we fail to do so. Jesus, thank you that you love us. You can take your seats. We are coming to the official end of our service. Um, if there's anything that came up for you today in the service and you'd like some time um, to be prayed for, or if there's anything going on in your week um, that you just feel like prayer would be helpful, then do come to the front of the church. Steve and Matthew and myself would love to pray for you. Um, we Please feel free to stay around for refreshments as well. Um, and we'll be heading to the pub around a quarter past six um, to continue on. And then next Sunday we'll have church as usual with our fourth series, fourth part of the series, What's the Story? Um, so may the Lord bless you and keep you.